have to hit your mic button on the bottom right. There you go. Hey, guys. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> yeah, th so thank you for joining us today. So as you heard for the last bit, we were kind of nerding out on the starts with Luna Rosa. <laughs> and so I was wondering if you could give us like some more insight, perhaps. Uh, you being a grinder on board on exactly, first of all, what is your role to most for everyone else here who doesn't know and like how the start procedure kind of goes? Um, well, my role on board is a uh, trimmer, but trimmers on these boats basically grind. Um, I haven't been doing much racing. I had a collarbone injury just before uh, the Christmas series, which I've been working through. But uh, got on for the final race against the Americans in the semis. But the guys, um, Umberto Marinetis, who took my spot, is doing a fantastic job. And there's no reason to mix things up. So I'm just here ready on standby to basically step in when and if needed. Um, but our starts, our starts are, I mean, the pre, it's been really good to get back to upwind starts after the last two editions of, you know, reachings, reaching starts with the Maltese, which were fun, but didn't really... Um, you, know, you didn't really get into the situations that you're starting to see now. Um, it's been a lot of work with uh, Philippe and uh, Keiko and Jimmy and all the guys on board really with uh, breaking down what can happen in those two minutes. Um, it's not much time, but with these boats, you've really just got to work on your time to kill and then making sure that you set up with the other boat um, and the calls that you want, because starts, as you can see, are becoming very important um, yeah, in the final results. Uh, I think for racing, it definitely sets you up to not have to sail around the other boat, especially as you can see, the boats are pretty evenly paced. So um, I think I think what you're seeing more and more is um, the importance, or what we feel we have is, a, and a call we made already two years ago in the design of the boat, uh, you know, with the split helmsman setup, we're not, uh, we're never sailing at, um, let's say, anything less than, you know, 95% with having to have a, you know, um, a helmsman change sides during a pre-start. Um, I think the British in that last little uh, high fly that they had in, the, in that start, I think it was Ben who got pinned underneath the boom on the massive ease, uh, which is something that we never want to have done. So one of the reasons we went for split helmsman. Yeah, that was quite scary, honestly, to see Ben, like, almost finish in the water. Like, or if he had had his hand, perhaps, next to the traveler, that would have been not so good as well. No, absolutely. So, I mean, good thing. It's a, I, mean, so, I mean, Pietro is the only guy. He's actually sitting I'm down in the gym. He's actually here just stretching out. Everyone's, uh, some of the guys are here training in the gym. But one of the things that we always discuss with Pietro and have done this whole time is with regards to the importance of not losing him overboard. Um, luckily, we haven't seen anyone go over this campaign yet. But the guys that do cross the back of the boat, um, yeah, when you're doing 45, 50 knots or the helmsman changes, has to change his rate of rotation in a maneuver, it's definitely a, a big thing of um, the G-forces. You really can't, you're really out of control at that point. Yeah, there's always super sketched out when I'm trying to reduce some of the deck grip for weight savings or <laughs> or these kind of things. He's always obviously saying, you know, we're not going to go very fast if I'm not on board, which is a very valid point. <laughs> 
obviously. So I have maybe a stupid question, but have you had the chance like to put your head up while you're sailing? And what does that feel like since not many of us get a chance to experience 50 knots um, foiling? Well, first thing is you'll have one of the helmsmen, you know, uh, shouting at you to get head down. <laughs> Just because even though they're, you know, obviously, I mean, one of the big things and, uh, you know, if if they could, they would also be, they would also be uh, head down as well. Um, ideally, you know, they're creating the most drag on the boat at this point, but we have to, you know, balance that with what they need to see on the race course. But all the rest of us, the four guys in front of the helmsman on either side, um, in maneuvers or high power requirements, you'll see, uh, you'll see us, you'll see our helmets just poking out over the, let's say the fairing that was added after the Christmas series. But um, yeah, especially in the trimmer role where you're the second guy facing forward. Um, it's basically like sticking your head out of the car window in a, uh, in a good, in a good downpour, you know, it's, it's pretty fast at apparent wind speed and water, water does hurt or sting at those speeds, which is why you see those guys always wearing those goggles. So and what I would be very interested about to, when, when you say trimmers and um, your role on board, whose role is it actually to, get, let's say, trim the jib? Is this also on the console of Pietro or is there somebody from the four guys in front who's doing that task? No, so, I mean, each boat's got a different setup. With us on Luna Rosa, uh, the trimmers are um, PG De Felice, Umberto Molineres and myself. Um, and yes, yeah, the second guy um, on the forward pedestal facing forward. And, you know, we are the guy that's controlling um, the head sail and also small functions on board. So that'll be, you know, our whole main cano and a few other things. So there's a lot going on, especially when uh, you've got shifty fifty conditions where in the lighter stuff, you've got to change all those functions. Um, pretty much in every maneuver and uh, and power up the boat, make sure you stay on the foils and so on. So there's uh, from off the boat in the videos, you might not notice, but yeah, those, those two positions, I mean, all actually all the grinding positions have uh, secondary roles. They're not just turning handles. They're doing a lot of other things at the same time. Well, fan fantastic Shannon and, and lovely to hear from you. Thanks for joining us this morning. I've, uh, I've, I'm a fan of the dual helm setup and uh, I was talking with Katie Spithill about it in our debrief the other night and, and, and we were both uh, skeptical, but we've been proven wrong. So well done. But, uh, but the tax that you guys are doing are incredibly special. And as you said, you're not losing anything out of them because you're swapping from a flight controller to a helmsman and, and back again. Um, is there anything else that you're doing in them because we're seeing sort of 15 meters that you're gaining to windward out of every tack which as you m mentioned there's no real speed differential so that to me is a, a massive a massive win for you guys oh, absolutely as i mean it was quite fun um coming back to the dock the other day and let's just say some of the young guys had never that was let's say the one of the first um, more extended tacking duels we've seen on these, let's say, AC-75s. Um, and it was quite, I did really feel like an old guy coming back in because <laughs> I know some of the guys were like, ah, oh, that was a you know, long, ta I mean, long, 
with you know so many tacks and i was like go back to 2007 when it was like 30 tacks that was the tacking deal kind of thing but it definitely made me understand my age but the <laughs> the, the reality is like you said i think we have uh with how we've set up the boat and we worked a lot on that we have the ability in certain situations to um depending on how we want to set up whether it's whether it's on a shift in pressure or whether it's with an, uh, an opponent, we, we can change our rate of rotation and basically can build what we call it on a high build and uh, not invest either going into the tack or out of the tack with boat speed. But it's all about, it's all about uh, basically um, boat speed into the tack is what will get you a good tack and, and gains. And if you have to invest into that, um prior uh of course as we all know in all boats um it's really difficult if you have another boat either covering you or you're trying to keep a lane above one and out of it it's the same thing so i think the biggest gains you saw in those 15 meters is probably because um ineos out of them was probably coming out at a wider true end angle and we were just gaining on that i'm not sure what the bottom, bottom boat speed is between the two boats and the maneuvers but uh it's definitely difficult if you're behind. Absolutely. And and I said just before you came into the room that my takeaway was that we got to see actual mat tracing. So I perhaps was showing my age also. Um, I I love tacking jewels and, and watching how you gain out of each of them. But the, uh, the, the, the base is it's harder to win from behind, which is why those starts are so critical. And, and you guys have been dominating the starts. I mean, I know that Philippe is... He loves his playbook, as does Jimmy. Have you all been working on on that playbook together? Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, there's there's files of um, our opponents. You know, their start of starting, as everyone knows. You know, um, all teams have recon teams. So when other teams have been training, um, we've broken down the probabilities of what their start playbooks are and all that kind of thing. So. Philippe loves his um, diagrams and all that stuff. And, yeah, the guys on board really know with the pre-start plan. I mean, definitely have your, you know, your option A and option B, and that comes through calls from just five minutes before the start from Vasco as well, what phase we're in, what we want to win, and that kind of thing. And obviously, like any pl- any plan, you know, it can change. Um, and that's down to that point. Usually... Keiko, um, I mean, I'm, you can probably hear it on the comms, but, you know, because Keiko is uh, helping on the port side. He's the one who's setting up for Jimmy on the final lead-in, usually. So, as you've seen on the Starbucks, a lot of the action happens on that, you know, mid to bottom right corner. So, Keiko's the guy actually driving when he has to decide with the time and distance and time to kill whether we're going to follow and push or jump and lead um and that's a you know that happens split second kind of thing so there's comms between the two um the training that we've done and really invested in we've, we've done a lot of pre-flights and close boat on boat well boat on chaz actually we can't do two-boat training as everyone knows but we've done a lot of um close quarter stuff with philippe who's basically been the second boat on our tender, which has been really interesting. Um, closing speeds, you know, when we are, when you're on a chase boat at 45 knots and a 
AC75s come in and at the same speed and tacking and a few meters away. But what it's, I think, given both Keiko and Jimmy is the confidence in their calls, even in tacking duels and so on, to call whether you're bow to bow or just across or these kind of things. We really have felt that um, the racing could be close and we need to capitalize on all the gains that you can make on those split second decisions because they can be a race winner or loser. I'm sorry to interrupt uh, really quickly. Uh, Shannon, there's also Umberto in this room. Umberto Molinares. Would you like to say something to him? Maybe invite him to speak. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean uh, let me, as I said, I'm a full clubhouse rookie. So, oh, there he is. Let me see. You gave me some good um, inputs last night. Yeah, so you're you just feel free to tell him, like even vocally, to come up and speak. Okay, all right. Hey, Umbi, you gotta put your hand up or something, right? This this app is no, cool. No, I invited him. I invited him. <laughs> oh, he has to accept at this point. We're just waiting on him. This is really a treat. Yeah. I honestly never expected in a million years to be like in this situation, honestly. It's so cool. And also, Shannon, it's it's hilarious listening to you telling us all this stuff. Like it's just second nature while you're in the gym. Like, <laughs> yes, I do apologize for the weights being... Uh, no, no, it's great. <laughs> no, no, no. The more we hear, the stronger you're getting, the faster you're going to go. Yeah, yeah. Keep training. Keep training. <laughs> it gives a very authentic very authentic application. So, so I've got one. Then we'll enable everyone else to raise their hands if they have any questions or anything. Um, you obviously sailed some of the arguably coolest boats ever, namely uh, Mare Mostro. Uh, yeah, or I can't remember how it was called. The... 470 anyways, Comanche, then the Foiling Cat. And I was wondering, like, which, how much did that help? And what are the main things that you take away from that sailing into your America's Cup sailing? Um, I mean, they're all such different boats. Um, I think the, and of course, as in, I think other sports, as in, we have a, such a, it's a, such a funny sport. I think that we're we're in, and with regards to there's so many different boats, you can be world champion in so many different different classes. People that, that don't follow sailing, um, you know, sometimes don't understand the differences between. I always try and tell people that it is sort of like snow sports, um, you know, whether it's alpine, you know, backcountry you know, slope style, all these kind of things that time in the mountains, as for us, time on the water definitely helps even with other disciplines and other boats and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I've been lucky enough to sail, like you said, all these absolutely insane boats, um, and it all does help. I've never done, let's say, dinghy sailing or sailing a moth or these things. Uh, my size has sort of... Uh, preclude me from those kind of options from a very young age. So um, the, I think the biggest part has always been um, actually rather than the technological side is the humans, the human side with just regarding knowing how to work with other people in big teams. Um, and 
experience you gain from errors that you may have made in things you wanted to change design-wise that you can pull in from other boats. Um, and I think the biggest part has been, um, I think the deed of gift match was also one of this campaign here has felt very much like that 2010 campaign with regards to it being such an unknown on the design side. And as most winning campaigns now work, the sailors have a really big input from their very, from let's say from the get go on, um, let's say on the final tool that we use. So a lot of the decisions are taken with sailor input. And yeah, of course there's a lot of tools and CFD and the whole design team, which is now not just like a naval architect or a studio, how it used to be classically, but it's more just engineers. Uh, you know, we have one yacht designer, maybe, but the rest is just computational and fluid you know, dynamic engineers and so on to come out to come out with the best shape and structure that will work. And us as sailors is always got to be the big decisions in what you guys see as in layout, you know, how are we going to make this go fast and how is it going to work? And it's a fine line, I think, between um, what ends up being what the wider public sees as a solution that works. Uh, that's always results-based. But I think sometimes in the Cup, you know, there have been, there've been packages that have definitely had winning DNA in them. Um, but it hasn't worked out for one reason or another. And that's what's amazing about the America's Cup. It's, it is about peaking at the right time and, and continuing to improve on your development through the racing series and everything coming together. So it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be a, this one I'm it's super excited to be a part of and interested to see how it finishes up. That's super cool, honestly. And so you talked about, you know, input from sailors. Is the, is there any particular piece of information that you're quite proud of contributing to this campaign in particular? I'm sorry. Um, just getting used to this mute button. So you guys think of the background noise. Um, no, the, um, I mean, a big part of it was, I think just now, nowadays when you do as, um, let's say as, a one of let's say the old let's say one of the old guard um i've got nick's laughing in the background because he's the young guard no one of, <laughs> as one of the old guard i think it's just been uh the fact of um you know we we do build a boat in nearly near scale uh one-to-one -one, uh prior to design decisions being made with regards to layout and all that kind of stuff and I think it was what we, as a sailing team, I think the, the thing we like is that you saw that we didn't change from boat one to boat two. Um, as in, we feel that decisions we made right at the very start are, were the right decisions and we stuck to them and, you know, and we're seeing the, you know, the results now. Um, I think. I definitely wouldn't have been one. I, it was really hard enough to stick to timeline. So hats off to the teams that, you know, did a full different change with regards to everything. But even, you know, their particular areas with regards to cockpit layout, you know, 
how they're grinding and all this kind of stuff. But I think the fact that our boat one, boat two, we would be happy enough to, you know, have sailed either kind of thing. And of course, boat two is quicker. We've sailed more time with it now and so on. But I think we had a, a package that was competitive from the very start. I think if you asked other teams to have raced the Christmas, the Ran Robins, for example, uh, with their boat one, they would, um, yeah, they would have not been so keen. Perfect. Thanks. So I believe Nick has a question, but first I would like to remind everyone in the room that if they have a question, any kind of question, no question is stupid, Could they can just press the button to raise their hand and we'll get to them when we get a chance. Oh, and, and no question is, is silly is, is the best best thing to say there, Marco, and, and anyone. If you do have a question, you can always message us offline as well if you don't want to come up on stage. More than happy to answer questions at any time. But, yes, yeah, Shannon, I, I, I think what you were saying there about sticking to the d- design phase, what I'm fi- finding really interesting now is how you've all gone away and solved a problem that was set to you, which we all saw all the memes back at the start of this cycle and we were all wondering how you were going to make it work, whether it was possible. You've all solved that solution now and the boats are effectively coming out with similar speeds. It's coming down to boat handling that is what is important to actually win these races and we've gotten back to traditional match racing. Did you think at the start of this program that you would come out at the end and have have other teams that have solved the problem, I guess, but with such um, similar boat speeds? Or did you did you wonder whether one would be particularly faster? Um, because ultimately we want the best challenger to go up against Emirates Team New Zealand too. Oh, 100%. Um, and I've, like I, said, I think from the get-go, the package that, whether it was, you know, Team New Zealand, Bernasconi and... Um, and the concept that they had, we knew it was a special boat, literally from day one of sailing boat one, because the things were literally, you know, falling straight out of the box. You know, it wasn't like uh, well, the, the last experience I had, you know, which was actually with the seventy twos and falling, where it was a, it was a much harder, more difficult process to get dialed in. And I think I think you also saw that in the racing in San Francisco, there was a big delta, you know, between teams. And I think that's what you've seen in the last eight years. And that's also through the experience of Bermuda and, and so on. It's just the fact that that know-how has also spread around uh, between, you know, syndicates. And um, and I think how on the, say, computational side, things have moved, moved forward, both with simulators and the you know design packages so that we pretty much know before we've even I mean the boats hit the water you know that our targets are accurate and where we're going so it's basically where are you going to get those gains and I think the gains are it's not going to be like the old version five boats where it took 15 years to get to you know really close close racing um you know, like we saw in sort of say in Valencia and so on. Um, I think if you looked at the start of you know those classes, there was always these massive, massive you know whitewashes and and differences in boat speed. Even though the boats were slower, the differences were still big as a percentage, you know, in relation to each other. Now I think uh, 
you can, as you saw from the Christmas series, you know, everyone may have, you know, signed off Ben and his team and, and given them some, you know, or be surprised at how they were going. But I remember telling the, you know, the young guys in the wider group that it's just, it's, it's not much to sort out an issue that you have. I mean, to identify, because there's so many things that can go into what's wrong, but that, once again, full hats off for the job that they did in the time that they did it to come through and just go through the round robins, you know, unbeaten and show them, you know, that they're the, they were sort of laying the benchmark for challengers. Of course, you know, we responded and they may have lost some development time trying to address those issues, but it's all part of the, let's say, America's Cup adventure with uh, how you come through challenges and face them and, and continue, like I said, it's continue the continue in the search for speed because, yeah, our boat even, I mean, we knew it you know, before sailing the Americans and even now, um, when we sail by ourselves, you know, we're sailing our, against our let's say our ghost boat, we're sailing against our polars, so we can see how we're improving day by day, and it is literally a day by day. Perfect. Thank you. So, uh, first of all, we have a question from Felix. But before that, one second, uh, Umberto, dai, per piacere, vieni su a farci un saluto, per piacere. Te lo chiedo in italiano perché sento proprio che c'è empatia, che ci si può he's, fare, si può fare. He, he's such a shy kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm talking with Julia now, and she's telling me. And I mean, this is a really chill and cool place. So if you could just pop up here and just say hi, that would be amazing, if he feels like it. Se darà senti un bisogno venire a fare un saluto. Grazie. Now, first, a question from Felix. Hey, everyone. Um, thank you, Shannon, for being with us. Um, you and I, we had a very nice chat um, back in 2019 doing the Yacht Racing Forum in Bilbao when the, we had a break and I remember you were I don't know there was so little you were able to tell us about the uh, current campaign because that was at such an early stage and obviously we were expecting like a interesting world series ahead of us um, back then and it's it's so nice to see those boats flying now and I think we'd be all absolutely excited of what comes up next and i know you've got some british roots as well i'm based in london so obviously i really hope for some more closer and tighter races in the next couple of days um maybe you do as well but my question is really do you think that um that those form this format of votes has a future for more than just this one america's cup likewise or like similar to what we expected uh, when we had the um, ac in bermuda uh, in 2017. um good question and yeah no hi i'll, I'll address first the british roots and uh and close the series that a yes fantastic i mean i think for spectators you know more racing and the closer it is the better it is but the reality is the scoreline doesn't reflect i think as how close the racing is we're very happy um you know if we can just keep the momentum going and and work as hard as we can and you know, of course take each race as, as it comes but as the challenger coming through the finals and not extended into a long series means we set up better against the defender 
and that would be for either whether it was Ineos or ourselves. You know, if you extend into into so on, it's more days of racing and less time and you know sorting yourself out because ultimately Team New Zealand are going to be a a formidable uh, defense as they always have been and so on. So uh, the second one is racing in England. I mean, I'll put it to all you guys with. Um, I know the British have to still win back the cup since 1851. They haven't managed. But I think um, the sunshine of Sardinia and the conditions we have there, I've sailed in the Solent and I have a lot of British you know, friends. I went to school in Leamington, but I think Sardinia beats um, cows in the Isle of Wight and the Solent uh, for sailing conditions. And I'm just thinking for the... You know, for what's best for the future America's Cup if there is one in either of those two locations. Uh, last one is, um, and the last one is with regards to the class. I think, and, and I've been fortunate enough, I think, of course, I would love this class to say, and I think a lot of teams are of the same mindset. Um, it's been great to be off the boat and see how the boats look off the boat. I, I mean, it, you don't notice it when you're on board. When you were sailing the multi-hulls, um, it was definitely a much more visceral experience as a sailor on board. You were hidden, you saw the racing, you understood how far you were going because all you could see was water, net. It was definitely felt more risky. Um, so the experience on board, aside from maybe the three guys at the back of the boat who actually do have their heads out, uh, for the other eight who are heads down, you don't. You actually have to go back and replay the race afterwards to actually know what actually went on um, it's just a, a cloud of max heart rate and head down looking your displays unfortunately but um, I think I think I would hope that you know whoever wins this cup keeps this class going forward so the biggest thing I think with having the stability of a continued class is there's the chance that new challengers could come in because A, there might be boats available immediately to purchase to start training. Um, as a sailor, it also means that you would start sailing immediately uh, on a platform un instead of you know waiting the first year and a half while a new rule is made, while you you know have to go through the design process. All fun, great things. As in, that's what's been super lucky about the last ten years. Every time it's been carte blanche, let's restart. But I don't think it's conducive for the sport with regards to having more teams involved in the America's Cup, which is something that I know since, uh, you know, basically since San Francisco, well, Peter Gift aside, since San Francisco, you know, there just hasn't been those numbers. But that can be a wider discussion with regards to sportsmanship and sports and all that kind of stuff. But I think the, the playing field and, you know, the whole argument, I think every time there's a new class, it's more of a level playing field than... You know, if you keep the same class, because if you've kept the same class, the defender, you know, had won the last one and he's one step ahead. So it's definitely, I think, in my mind, more difficult to catch up. But at the same time, people feel more secure because they know it's a package that works. You know, they might be able to get some IP and, and actual boat on their hands straight away. And we'll see how it going. We'll see how it goes this time around. But obviously, the only thing I would change with these boats is maybe simplify them. A little bit systems-wise, I'm sure a lot of teams have input and feedback on what they could do. That's been one of the one of the things about the complexity of these boats. But I think there's a few a few things that you could do to 
make them a bit more of a simple package with regards to maintenance and uh, and resources required to keep them sailing or should we say flying because yeah the the hours of sailing compared to maintenance is probably aircraft standard thank you so much that was amazing and i really hope from my perspective that um keeping the boats the same for the next round of america's cup in four years time will allow more countries to join as well but uh thank you very much and uh best of luck and um and keep watching you for sure. Thank you. Thanks, Felix. Maybe clinching in at one point that uh, you were mentioning earlier, um, what was uh, already a question on my list. <laughs> uh, I know you can't get very much into details, but uh, could you maybe tell us uh, which areas of improvement are, let's say, the really performance critical in your perspective? Or is it the mainsail, the headsail, foils? You talked about the aero fairings, or is it electronics or steering? What would you say, of course, we heard about that it's it's everything, every single thing um, of them in, in combination together. And uh, I think Keiko Bruni said um, that time on the water is the most critical to him. But would, would we say, because of the title of this uh, room is still the technical breakdown, <laughs> I will bring it more to boat technical thing. Uh, what would you deem as some kind of the most important uh, in your opinion? I mean, uh, I think the, I mean, you mentioned that everything has to work together. Together, um, if you have foils that provide more writing moment, you don't have an error package to match. Like sail-wise, it's not going to work. All these kind of things, and that's totally right. But I think big gains that can be had um, are obviously, in my mind, in the underwater appendages. You know where that stuck. We definitely, I think, the biggest thing in this campaign was there was obviously whether it was for cost, but also the reality is also timeline, um, a limit on the sets of foils you could have each team could build three sets um and obviously you're you know you're locking in your first uh right at the very start because of the lead time of boat and build and you go sailing with them and the reality is nowadays unlike in the past where it would take a lot of sailing days to sort of really understand the gains and losses because the speeds were so slow in the old boats. The one talking version five, you know, where you would have to go through all the wind range and, you know, and you'd be scratching your heads to understand those gains and losses. Now with how we can measure our performance, you basically know within minutes if something's working or not. Um, I mean, that's a bit extreme, but you know it really i mean the helmsman whether you know you're putting on a new rudder and you go sailing in the conditions that you're in you'll have the answer pretty quick and of course you need to check that and you'll continue to sail it and then uh but at that point you'll know very quickly if the decision you made months prior is the right one and you hope you know of course with everyone and and the sort of resources we have uh, that it is um, we've been fortunate enough in that respect to still keep going on down the right path. So I think more gains are in that department. And that's also not only in shape and so on, but also in construction in order to allow systems to work more efficiently. Um, 
I think, uh, control, like as in what the foil trimmers do is absolutely amazing. Um, each boat has a different setup and to how they trim the foils, but you can definitely go for a more extreme, faster foil if you have a very good control system that's very accurate. And, uh, yeah, that's always, I think, been the case. So I think there's a lot to ex still explore there. Aero side, with regards to sales, the main sales, I mean, we have a great group, you know, with Vasco and um, Juan Garay and Marco Capitani, Nicholas Carabelli and all those guys working um, with North and, yeah, and the sale package there. That's also something that we built a lot of them. And at the very start, I'm sure all teams went through some various iterations on control systems and and how things work and all that kind of stuff. And it's only, it's actually when we, when you get to the final sort of cup venue, when you can start to really compare sail shapes and speeds with other boats, uh, when you're sailing in similar waters, it's actually where a lot of the final acceleration uh, happens because you may have had issues, but it was understanding how and where and why. You have a great package, but suddenly until you really line up and start racing with another boat that you can confirm or not. So um, that's an interesting part. I feel I, I mean, hats off to our guys. I definitely like the look and, you know, of our package. I've, um, the Kiwis are very similar in how clean they are and so on down low. I know the, you know, the Brits and the Americans went for a more traditional, let's say, setup. Um, Boom-wise, that I think leaves, uh, and it's just difficult. As in, I'm biased for sure, but I, I like how we set up. So let's hope that yours um, uh, equate to results. Yours definitely looks a lot prettier. <laughs> and I mean, that was part of the deal with Prada. We have to look good as well. But <laughs> if you look good and go fast, that's uh, definitely a bonus. Uh, hilarious. Yeah, that's something we already. <laughs> Yeah, established as well as a fact that, uh, yeah, I think uh, Marco, of course, is biased, uh, but it's, let's say the the more um, non-Italian or non-Donarossa-focused uh, persons like Nick and me, we are also, and I think uh, Brooks was also about our opinion that uh, the Lunarossa boat is by far the most prettiest. But this is a very important thing or interesting thing that you're talking about. Is it really um, that you're arriving at the venue or that you're starting the first races with like 40, 50 ideas of the of a solution for the same technical um, yeah, alternatives uh, for, for one technical solution? And then quickly you're sorting out, okay, and we're coming down to five or, or four alternatives that you could say those are the ones that we believe the most are working and then you're you're just making tiny adjustments between them. I mean, that's the Horacio Carabelli, who's basically project manages everything with the boat. Um, there is, that's the biggest thing with any America's Cup campaign. Um, and it's very definitely classic cliche, you know, with regards to the only thing money can't buy is time. Um, you know, you've had guys that have thrown in hundreds of millions of campaigns and over there, you know, over there to say America's Cup Adventures. Um, but 
a big part of that is having the people, you know, and the discussions and the experience to, let's say, whittle down that priority list uh, on things that you would love to do because there's never enough time to do everything that you want to do. Um, so there's always continued and even down to daily meetings on things that you still want to improve and could improve. Do you have the time? Do you have the resources? Um, one of the things that's definitely changed this campaign compared to prior ones, um, I'm not sure where it came from, whether it was a budget standpoint or try to keep things, you know, relaxed, uh, is a, which is a big call is with regards to, you know, measurement certificate and not being able to change things during, um, let's say, each race series. So on one side, it's uh, made things a little bit more chill. Um, well, it's made it more chill if you're on the leading side of a situation in a series to the changes that you can make uh, to it. I remember in San Francisco with Oracle, you know, we were getting a new measurement certificate basically daily um, with the, you know, with the continued mods that we were doing throughout the campaign. That there are small things you can do here, but nothing big during the actual let's say week or 10 days or say, depending how long the series is going to go. Um, but yes, to answer your question shortly, which I'm really bad at doing, is there is a huge list of things that you'd want to improve and you'd never get the time to do it. Great. Um, I just want to reiterate that we're open for questions to anyone, anche agli italiani. Qualsiasi domanda, ragazzi, alzate la mano, vi facciamo entrare, fate la vostra domanda senza alcun tipo di problema, poi la traduciamo noi, non vi preoccupate. Um, yeah, so does anyone have a question? I, I have a question, maybe maybe from a less yes. technical perspective. Um, Shannon, we, we've seen how fast you've gone in racing, but are you willing to share how fast you've gone in training, top speeds? <laughs> I can say we've gone faster in training than in racing. <laughs> 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 Uh, we've gone a uh, we've got a we've gone a good bit faster in training, not by choice. I think it was I can't remember who it was in one post race interview. Maybe it was us. It was with Terry and Keiko and so on. Um, the reality is it's the, the the fastest speed, as in top boat speed. I know America's Cup is doing this thing of always posting like fastest boat of the day or whatever it is, but that top speed always happens at the Windward Gate on the Bearway. Um, going through the power zone and that's not if you've got a really high top speed it's usually because it's breeze on and it's the basically the riskiest moment uh in the race and you'd prefer not to mm. you know not to be breaking speed records there because a lot of i mean a lot, as were as was you know the story in bermuda i know with team new zealand also with oracle and a lot of things a lot of these foil packages and this with the safety factors that they've been designed to um they you know they've been you, you can push the envelope but then you got into cavitation and that puts stress and uh you know you can start to damage finish at those speeds as well on your foils um that's all stuff that you don't want to put on the boat especially when it has to go through a series where you don't have the time to open up those systems and check them and do them and so on so we're happy to sacrifice a few knots in order to keep our average around the race course good and and go fast where it matters which is basically vmg upwind and downwind 
Absolutely. And and I think we've seen basically anything above 48 knots, it gets a little bit scary, uh, especially when you're in the semi-final against American Magic. They had the top speeds of the day, but obviously that was just before they were wiping out. So it is hard to explain. Uh, and thanks for answering that question that top speed isn't everything. Average speed is everything. And uh, and, and you guys have been doing incredibly well. You, uh, you mentioned, and, and we've been hearing in all of your answers, the relationship between you guys. And I love how you keep coming back to the human factor, even with all your past experience, it's the humans and, and those people that make the adventures for you. Um, how, how tight is the Luna Rossa team? I know the relationship between Jimmy and Kiko must be incredibly strong to make that dual helmsman uh, relationship work. And, and you're not even sailing on the boat right now, but it's your victory as well. It, it sounds incredibly closely knit. Oh, I mean, 100%. As in, you know, there's only 11 guys on the boat. But there's over another, there's over a hundred other people on the team, you know. Whether it's the forty short team, thirty designers, you know, uh, our admin, you know, everybody, um, and they they win and lose like the guys on the water, if not more so. It's one of the things, <laughs> and I have to take my hat off to Max. I mean, I didn't, I didn't understand what it was like to go through the feelings of what it's like when you're off the boat but um, it's definitely harder being off the boat than on the boat when you're racing <laughs> things are you know out, in a way out of your control and it's just a roller coaster. you just have to hook in and hold on and, and feel with it but I think the biggest part you can be even for sailors in, a, in, in moments where you are winning and moments that you are losing is important is just to keep that constant um, you know that vibe of uh, knowing that the process you're going through is, you know, is correct, and it, if you win, as difficult it is for especially an Italian team to, you know, to dampen celebration, it's it's what we came here to do. So, and we're not even at where we need to get to. So, we'll celebrate when the time is right. Um, and it's the same thing with the losses. That you know, each each loss is a learning. The biggest part about taking a loss is that it's a learning process, and make sure that you learn from mistakes. And that's what I think. We did really well and really honestly, and that's what is, what's important about having a a good group, especially sailing team-wise, is that you can talk freely about mistakes, put your hand up, identify quickly where they are, uh, that there are no egos. Um, a big part has to come through what we did with um, what the nurses call it, like the new generation. Um, which is these six, eight guys that we identified at the very start of the campaign, you know, went through a long process of applications to find new talent within Italy, um, even from other sports. We have a lot of guys that came from rowing. Um, and it's been really cool to see that happen. Uh, they're all a great group. I mean, Umbi is one of them. Uh, he's now off because he has to, yeah, he's gone actually to work um, but the the reality is that the America's Cup is yeah it's a technological um, I mean I've always had this argument even within my family when there was you know my old man's a sailor and went to the Olympics and so on but he was always up in arms about how when we were at Oracle we were destroying the sport you know switching to you know, multi-hulls and all this stuff and it's always been I think the fact that the America's Cup is in the chase of technology which hopefully and has historically trickled down to the wider sailing community 
but the big part that a lot of people miss and don't see or appreciate is the human aspect and that's the reality of any team that has this many people uh, we have to work together for three years you know full time um, and it's great being in a I've been fortunate for two decades now to always be in an environment where there's a common goal. You know, everyone knows what they're, you know, fighting for every day. So, you know, super appreciative that opportunity. But I think sometimes the importance of the human aspect is missed. So, mm-hmm. one of the cool things when we did that new generation aspect, um, you know, with Gillo and Pietro, you know, who are the other guys involved, and Max, of course, who had the final say, but. Um, we had to identify the skill sets and rate, you know, these new athletes and that their actual technical and sailing abilities and fitness were maybe 20, 30, you know, um, percent. So it was a human aspect which actually had the biggest importance. I think it was 40% of the final score was what we assessed you know, be it communication skills, how they were as a person, uh, you know, how they'd help out in, in various opportunities. We only had them for two days, but it was that aspect that you can teach someone, you know, how to be a good sailor or they've been, you know, they've all gone and had secondary skill sets, whether it's in hydraulics or electronics or all these other departments. Those things, they're smart, you can teach them. Well, you can't teach people or difficult to change is how they are as a human and that's the biggest part so you got to pick just basically good guys and girls ultimately um, to make a winning package Fantastic See? Shannon um, and Marco just just one thing before Alberto asks the question so um, yep. Shannon Shannon, during racing uh, we've seen that Jimmy's heart rate's at about 66 and uh, I think we need to put a, a heart rate monitor on Max during racing and see what that looks like. <laughs> oh, 100%. It would literally, it would be his max heart rate. It would, it would be higher than anything he's done in the last 10 years. And, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I'll, I'm going to try, I'll, I will actually, I, I'll try and get something. If we keep going forward, I'm going to ask him to do that because it, uh, it would be hilarious to see. It would be. Um, Alberto is up. Sorry, um, I, I interrupted your question, Alberto. What is what is your question? I manage English quite well, I would say. A uh, couple of questions, more like curiosities and other uh, things. I mean, the first one is, uh, do the foils uh, rise and lower? Uh, I mean, the energy, where is it produced? Is it? I mean, batteries on board or the grinders are producing it. Secondly, secondly, I mean, I know maybe this is a silly question, but um, honestly, in Italy, there's not that much of a technical coverage in the press uh, about this this new this new boat. Oh, uh, after those the latest two two races about uh, the extra work that the grinders had to do so the other question is uh, is uh, are the grinders uh, more uh, stressed with these boats than the previous ones thank you and thank you thank you for for being here uh, so um, first question luckily for us and for the boats and you guys we do not have to power the 
FCS, which is the foil can system. On these boats, in a really simplistic term, everything that's under the waterline is powered by batteries. So that movement of the boards, which you see going up and down side to side, but also the flap actuation. So on the wings, the wings have flaps just like an airplane. So that movement and also the rudder. The rudder doesn't have flaps, but the whole blade can move. So the rudder ink and actuation, all of that is powered by uh, batteries. Um, the forecast system is a one design package designed by Team New Zealand um, and same for everyone. The What we power as grinders is what you see above the water. So it's basically the, the sail package. You know, all the full north sail package is us. So that's where there's the sheet, the traveler, and all the small functions, which are jib cano, main cano, outhaul, you know, everything else, spanner, twist, everything, all of those kind of things uh, are all powered by grinders. So of course, um, funnily enough, people always assume it's in the heavy air that it's the hardest work that's actually the opposite for a lot of boats um in the heavy air it's actually a usually lesser workload on the boat because the sails are smaller um you have to do less work with regards to powering up out of or into maneuvers um so the hardest races are done top end of the J1 or let's say one and a half so we're talking those 8 to 10 knots those are actually the most physical races from a load uh, and let's say energy requirement standpoint on the other side of the coin in those situations in those wind speeds you usually do less maneuvers and you try and go boundary to boundary because every maneuver is a risk of basically well, not only risk, it's a, it's a bigger loss than in heavier to, to tack and so on. So, um, yeah, so that's the balance. And then the second part was um, full brain fade here. Chime in. <laughs> I'm Albie. Second question? Yeah. Next question. Uh, does Alberto, do you have a follow-up question to uh, that? Yeah, he did. It was, I was only, I only uh, the first part. It was very clear. It was very clear. Thank you. No, no. Well, the uh, the question, the second part of the question was, um, is there an increase yes. in the load? Is there an increase in the load in this particular boat for the grinder? Ah, okay. Grinder. To other boats. Yeah. Sorry, that was it. So, yeah, yeah. With respect um, to the previous ones. Yeah, with, the, the, with respect to the previous ones. Um, I mean, I missed out on the F50s, but I don't think they were. I mean, they were smaller. I can relate it to the 72s and so on. And the, no, I think ultimately these races are very intense. I mean, uh, but they are relatively short, but you wouldn't want to go. I mean, it, the, it, the human aspect is what would be detrimental to the performance of the boats. Because you can see that we're working or the guys are working. I'm actually having a pretty chilled out time. But um, the, the workload for the 25 minutes is very high. Um, there's also two, two different styles between the challengers. You may have noticed it on TV, and that's related to the decisions they had with regards to their systems. But um, you can do two things to provide energy on board from a pedestal and as a grinder, which is one is direct, 
which is more classic mechanical style with a pedestal connected mechanically to you know a, um, a winch or a system um, so you'll see grinders stop and then start again and that's like you, what you see on any maxi or you know Comanche or anything around well Comanche no take that apart because they took off all the pedestals so they're, motor, they're powered by a motor now but the um, but on the other side of it is what we call the black hole of death which is hydraulics and when you get into hydraulics and accumulators you basically grind non-stop never ends and there's a guy on the other end who's usually your wing trimmer who has a little basically Nintendo sort of remote control and he requests energy and it has to always be there because you're basically pressurizing a system an accumulator and he can request that power so for example with the British or the Americans you saw it a lot they were basically grinding absolutely non-stop just at a constant pace and that's just two different mindsets usually when you go through that system there is a energy loss uh, on the front end but you may get gains you may make gains with um, being able to always have you know power on tap uh, to do multiple things at the same time so it's a balance and we'll see who's got it right uh, I just want to say, Alberto, thanks for that question. Um, it was really, really good question because I was uh, confused about that, those details. Shannon, uh, just to follow up on that last little bit, is is the hydraulic pressure that's created by the grinders, does that feed a reserve or is that always live? There's no there's no hydraulic reserve that you're pressurizing. No, no, you're allowed an, an, you're allowed an accumulator. So... Um, it's, you know, it has to be for the rules where there's you know, volume and pressure and so on, but no, both do have an accumulator, um, and that's what you, I mean, I'm not sure how the other boats are using it, you can decide how and what to use it on, um, you know, we've definitely made our choices, and I can't tell you right now, probably never actually, no, just kidding, but um, we, yeah, the rules this time around, unlike Bermuda, uh, Bermuda thinks hydraulic system couldn't go over 300 um, but in 2013 it was the same as it is now which is uh, 600 bar so us hydraulic system works at 600 bar which I'm not sure how many of you are hydraulics experts I definitely wasn't prior to 2013 and I still not but um, when I think the biggest thing was that 350 is what this is generally the industry standard is what airlines and you know systems work at but um, those are very coarse and heavy systems um, so if you work at a higher pressure you have to move lower volume so we have to you know we didn't have the RPM for pedestals to move enough oil to pressure low pressure system so sorry to power a low pressure system so that's why we have to get to this high pressure for efficiency but it means that the systems are super strained. Um, if there's a department that you have to choose on the shore team that sees a lot of work and maintenance and making sure everything works all the time and the systems, it's the hydraulic and mechatronics department. So that's uh, Massey Carbone and Davide Biscuma. Like our other two guys, they're just on it all the time and uh, 
you one of the things you don't see those are things that hydronics are like electronics they can always be these little gremlins that literally jump up and out at you minutes before a start on a system that was checked the night before you know checked in the morning because we when we launched boat of the water we also do like an aircraft we do a full pre-flight system checks when we're at the dock so if anything comes up we have the time to address it then but sometimes you go through that and everything works and then you go out and you do your warm-up and something comes up and that has happened even in you know in the series to date so it's been uh yeah hats off to those guys for always being on it even on the chascat when they have to jump on minutes before the start to solve issues and uh, get us around the race course Wow. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, just a, another follow-up to the follow-up. Was is there a reason why that uh, that system is hydraulic versus electric? Why wouldn't the whole system be? Is that just the spec that came from New Zealand? Uh, so that system's hydraulic. That was the spec that came from New Zealand. I mean, you can have electric systems on board, and you know maybe some teams are working with electric systems. Uh, the one thing with, maybe we were talking to, with regards to, for example, actuators, um, let's say the difference between a hydraulic cylinder and a electric actuators, you definitely have um, much more uh, accuracy on an electric actuator. Actuator, sorry, like if you request an exact position, it'll go there that's what you don't have in a hydraulic system uh, also because of the speeds and the speeds you're doing the load changes whether it's on a flat control surface or anything like that so the part of the the hydraulic part on the other hand is very energy dense it can push a lot of it can take a lot of force you know so the loads are really high on let's say the slaps so that's why I think the majority of teams have gone down that route. Um, we'll see how you know things change out, and hopefully in the future, you know, if you can get faster electrical systems, it might go that way. But you know, hydraulics are definitely uh, are definitely the way now uh, with with the loads they have to deal with, and uh, also with the maneuvers, the number of maneuvers that we have to do. Got it. Thank you. So I have a question for Shannon. Um, what's your, so we talked about Jimmy's and Kiko's heart rates. I was wondering what a grinder's heart rate was during a race and what your training regime is like. So grinders, I mean, all the guys were wearing uh, the same units that the Helmsman had the other day. So we'll see, I'm sure they might get to a point where they're showing and doing a grinder heart rate comparison. Cause that would be actually quite interesting to see even between the teams. Um, the heart rates of grinders, I think, I mean, my max heart rate, and I'm nearly 40, is 190. When I was a spring chicken and I started, it was about 205. Um, but we've got young guys here that are, yeah, uh, two of, over 200, 205 as well. And if you're doing a good 20, 25 minute grinding session, you're probably sitting on 165, 170 average. Um, so you're working, yeah, you're working 
up in the red side, um, especially if you think attacking fuel. The Jimmy, you know, Iceman, you saw his hurry was about 66, 65 uh, when they looked at it. I know I jokingly got into Kinko a little bit because he was around 112, 120. But that's just because he's Italian and very passionate, you know, so he, uh, he, uh, Shannon, he got up to 146 when you're finishing race two, just as you're coming across the finish line. It was like, woohoo, we've won two races, 146. Exactly. You can't, I mean, one of the jokes we had in uh, San Francisco with Jimmy, we actually had a camera um, that looked back at both Jimmy and at that point it was Dirk the Ritter in all the training with the 72s. And um, every barrier we did on the 72, Ortiz, his face was uh, absolute terror on every barrelway, and Jimmy's was a blank canvas. So even the day we flipped boat one, Jimmy's uh, face didn't change. You wouldn't have known that we were just about to destroy. Oh, I wasn't on board, but he was about to destroy a boat. And uh, and one of the things, I mean, that is one of the, I think, positives in this also relationship between both Jimmy and Kiko cliche once yin to once yang kind of thing but there is definitely this balance in um, in how they operate and that's been really cool to see I mean I've definitely I've sailed much more with Jimmy over the years than Kiko but I was involved with Kiko back in my first campaign with Venerosa back then so it's been cool to see how they've you know gone ahead and work together one of the cool things that works on the human aspect and and the professional sort of athletes that they are is when you have one helmsman in a campaign when it's only a one boat campaign who is there to push you Mm. that's a question that I'm asking even to you guys because it's Mm. something you know I've thought about and so on like usually when you had two boat campaigns you've got like in San Francisco we had Ben you know, helping the b-boat there was someone else that was putting you on the spot you know and and enforcing that so if you're a helmsman on a campaign here and there's no one else there going they're you know, going for your spot so to speak yes you have to have that personal drive and it's there and everyone's super professional 100 percent. but one of the cool things has definitely been that having whether it's two helmsmen, two foil trimmers, and I'm sure it happens with the foil trimmers on other boats if they have two foil trimmers. It's just that accountability at the end of the day when you go through performance debriefs of like, hey, this guy was doing a better job. And it's not keeping to yourself why you've been doing that job better. Now the analysis, you know, Matteo Ledri and, and all the guys that go through and the number of, I mean, the reports that we get at the end of the day are mind-blowing. Um, you got to really enjoy looking at graphs and scatter charts and all that kind of stuff. But um, it's amazing to see all the data that comes off these boats at the end of the day. But one of the cool things is that one of the cool things is that you can identify very quickly the differences in style between the two, and therefore accelerate the improvement. If it's only one guy, you wouldn't have seen that. So that's been a very cool thing to see and watch because there was definitely two styles. Mm-hmm. And we need to always see which one's faster and quicker and sort of merge them together. That's, um, I was thinking about that. Yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry. No, no, you go, Chris. Yeah, I was thinking about that um, that uh, aspect, what you were saying, uh, just 
when uh, I think it was in uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, on, on the Luna Rossa Instagram page uh, where they showed those sailing gear bags of port and starboard. I don't know whether or your jackets are in there, but um, is it some kind of a rivalry like port side against starboard side? Um, <laughs> oh, for sure, one hundred percent. I still we have a great group of young guys and sailors that only. That friendliness only happens on shore when we're on the boat. No, just kidding. No, there is definitely a, um, there's definitely a, uh, a, a, we joke about it when we're on the water, you know, which cockpit's ready uh, first to do things and all that kind of stuff. So it's, uh, but that's happened in any boat I've been with, you know, even on the 72s, we were split also into cockpits, even on the same side. So you definitely do create a bond Yes, within the sailing team, the wider team, but also on board with your, let's say, opposite grinder or that kind of stuff. Um, that also goes into even the safety aspect of these boats and all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, I think one thing that, you know, we talked about briefly about Ben's situation and the pre-start, uh, what happened with American Magic, something I think that complacency is the wrong word, but I think... Uh, we always forget about and maybe you also forget about it when watching it is the risk of sailing these boats uh, not only by yourself but in what we will you know in what goes on when racing gets closer and closer and pressure goes up and up and so on is the reality that you can lose control of these boats um, I remember I think the only incident boat on boat that happened in Bermuda was the pre-start I think with Ben and uh, Chris with or Dean at that point, sorry. Dean and Chris Draper with Japan. Mm. But um, we definitely don't want these AC-75s to connect with, uh, you know, with the foils and the wings that they have sticking out of them. But going back to the buddy system, that's also how I think all teams operate with. If a situation happens, you're looking for your buddy, which our buddy is the guy that's in front of you on the pedestal because in a capsize, you just have to stick with them and make sure that you know, you guys come out together. Yeah, so I'm sorry, really quick. Chris mentioned the Instagram, Rosa. So I want to give a quick shout out to Julia and Sara. Amazing job. And yeah, thanks. So I'm sorry, go ahead, Nick, with your question. Oh, no, all good. I was I was just going to um, carry on from what we were talking about with, um, with Kiko and Jimmy, and I was talking about it with... Katie Spithill and basically the, the setup of having the onboard training partner and, and, um, and being able to move on from that. But I was also going to comment and say thank you, Shannon. You've spent over an hour with us now. So we, um, we, we really appreciate your time and, and your insights. So thank you for, um, for spending yeah, a whole hour with us, basically. <laughs> no worries. I mean, this is, this is my first um, clubhouse foray. So it's definitely interesting to check out. And a pretty cool platform so yeah thanks for the invite always glad to spread the sailing stoke so to speak um so yeah no i should yeah it's it is i should uh, yeah julia is telling me you have to go to work <laughs> exactly exactly you get to see it as a multiplication of luna rosa fans yeah and um and good luck and 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 all the best for the next few days especially with Hopefully, an announcement later today that you'll come out of lockdown as well. That would be yeah, ideal. Yeah, no, no, that's uh, it definitely. I mean, for us, I mean, we went through it in in Cali and Sardinia, and I think what they what they're doing. I have to give a shout out to New Zealand as a whole because what they 
of things that we've as we've seen 70 or 48 hours ago even with just three community cases it's a pretty it's a very fast and rapid response just in order to sort of track and trace and hopefully as you said we'll get a I mean, the teams have an event that we have a protocol to operate under even lower levels of lockdown to continue the racing, but hopefully we can get back to have it fully open so the spectators can enjoy the show. Yeah, so thanks for your time, Shannon, once again. But I have one final, like, closing question, let's yep. say. Um, how did your nickname Shaq come to be? <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have no... It's been a while for... It's been around for a while. Um, I think it's just maybe I was tall, big. I used to weigh a lot more than I did now. I think at my heaviest, I was 125 kilos and what, 6'5". So, um, I mean, I'm not sure if it came from Shaquille. Some people did used to call that. But no, I've honestly, I, I don't know where it came around, but it stuck. And yeah, that's what some people, uh, some people call me. Yeah, so... Does is Shack Attack, so I can only hope you can do a similar thing. Perfect. Well, guys, thanks for having me. I do have to roll. Um, yeah. yeah. I'll, uh, Thank I'll you so out. much. No Honestly, worries. I'll check it's out been great. Sessions. Nick, thanks. Chris, thanks. Brooks, we haven't met, but thank you too. Thank Good you. luck, buddy. Coming. Good luck. No worries. Ciao. Have a great day. Ciao. Well, bye, guys. Thank you all for tuning in. And-